Marking its 40th anniversary in 2022, Blue Door is the largest emergency housing provider in York Region, providing life-saving support to children, youth, adults, seniors, and families at risk or experiencing homelessness. Along with offering emergency housing and housing retention support, in the past two years, Blue Door has expanded its service offering to further work toward preventing and ending homelessness through inclusion, the first supportive housing program for two SLGBTQ plus youth in York Region. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, providing supported skills training to help youth and adults break barriers to employment and secure meaningful careers in construction trades and launching in 2022 a health hub which will include a nurse and in-reach system navigator to help people regain the health and well-being needed to secure and retain permanent housing. Join Blue Door's mission and become part of the solution by learning more at bluedoor.ca. We at On The Way Home would like to acknowledge the original stewards of whose lands this podcast is recorded on. In York Region, we recognize we're on the traditional territories of the Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, and the Anishinaabe peoples, and that this is the treaty lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit. And in Vancouver, we acknowledge that we are on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, the Musqueam, Squahomish, and Tsleil-Waututh, whose presence on these lands continue to this day. Welcome to On The Way Home, a podcast dedicated to the issues surrounding homelessness and the incredible experts making a difference in the lives of homeless people. Remember to subscribe to the podcast anywhere you're listening and share it with a friend. Welcome to another episode of On The Way Home. I am your host, Michael Braithwaite from Blue Door. This podcast is brought to you by the good folks at Blue Door and, of course, from the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness. And if you don't know and you haven't done so already, go to the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness website, so C-A-E-H dot C-A, and check out their conference. It's coming up in the fall, biggest conference of, uh, of its nature uh, in Toronto this year. If you want to attend in person or you can attend virtually too as well, you don't want to make the trip, but some of the best speakers, some of the best experts from around the world come and we discuss all things housing, homelessness, health, uh, policy. It, it's a, just an incredible conference. And so make sure you get booked in before it gets booked up. Uh, as well, of course, they're always um, working on Built for Zero uh, communities and doing their work around that. Uh, so check that out. If your community is interested in becoming one, uh, just reach out to the good folks at the Canadian Alliance to end homelessness. They're doing great work there. And of course, at Blue Door, um, as we record this, it is Pride Month at Blue Door. We are marching in the York region. Uh, Pride Parade this week, coming weekend, and we'll be joining our friends at Johnson & Johnson in the Toronto Pride Parade on uh, June 25th. And, you know, for us at Blue Door, we did something a couple of years back that we're intensely proud of. We have a program called Inclusion, I-N-N, like an in you stay at, inclusion, of course, and that was designed for 2S LGBTQ plus youth experiencing homelessness. There's nothing of that nature in our uh, region, which is made up of nine different municipalities. It take an hour to drive across. We had two, not one, but two different surveys showing this was desperately a need for young people from that community to feel safe. Uh, so we stepped up. We're doing that. Uh, it's continu- continuing to grow. We listen to the feedback of our lived experts who live there. Uh, so we're always tweaking that program and looking to grow in the future. So that's pretty cool. Very proud of that. But hey, I don't want to keep our amazing guest waiting today. I'm really excited about today's guest. Uh, comes to us from uh, uh, the U.S. 
Uh, let me tell you a little bit about our awesome guest today. And of course, the links uh, to this guest will be seem pretty obvious and why it's linked to this podcast on housing yeah. health um, across the world. So today we have Dr. Rob Kelly, who is a PhD and a sought after recovery expert who believes in treating the causes of addiction and not the symptoms, which is awesome. Dr. Kelly has appeared on such shows as The Doctors, Eye Opener, Good Morning Texas, uh, Ken's Five Morning News. He's a frequent contributor to radio and print inter interviews, including The Jim uh, Mahanan Show, Miracles in Recovery, USA Today, and participated in McLean Hospital, it's a Harvard's medical, Harvard Medical School study, on the stigma associated with mental illness. Dr. Kelly hosts his Sober Slev Show on KLIF Radio in Dallas and currently hosts the Breaking Through Addiction podcast. You've got to check this out if you haven't already, featuring special guests discovering a variety of mental health issues. Dr. Kelly's created Let's Get Back to 98% Recovery DVDs used in prisons and recovery treatment centers throughout the U.S. He has lectured on addiction and trauma at high-profile universities, national conferences, treatment facilities, public schools, churches, business organizations, and hospitals. Dr. Kelly is currently the CEO of the Rob Kelly Recovery Group, an addiction and mental illness recovery coaching company he created based on extensive research and behavior studies that he conducted over the past 20 years. Dr. Kelly shares his personal highs and lows as he struggled and overcame crippling alcoholism in the November 2019 release of the book, Daddy, Daddy, Please Stop Drinking. So not only is he an expert, he is a lived expert. Dr. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Michael. That's an introduction. I have to read that myself one day. Sounds really good. Good to be here, man. Thank you for having me, guys. Uh, yeah, we're so fortunate to have you on uh, to share your insights. We ask a standard question of everyone who comes on the show, and, and there really isn't a uh, correct answer because it's very personal to everyone. Dr. Rob, what when you think of home, what does home mean to you? Well, today, home means safety. Home means... Um, just comfortable and secure uh, for my for my family. So it, it it's really big for me. It's really big for me psychologically psychologically to have a place that I can call my own home. Because probably we'll get through it later. But I was homeless for a long time, so it's really really important. Wow, and that makes total sense uh, with that personal experience as well. Let's talk about that personal experience. Your bio touches on it, but I'm hoping you could, for our listeners who may be uh, unfamiliar, it's an incredible journey. Can you walk us through it in a little more detail? Well, I started drinking at the age of nine. I was born into an alcoholic family, but back in the day, nobody knew, so I wasn't advised. Um, took my first drink at the age of nine in Liverpool, where the Beatles are from, because I'm from Manchester, England, in case some of you thought I was from East Texas. It's not correct. So my first drink at nine, and uh, it kind of, you know, alcohol was really good to me for a long time through school. I was never anything brilliant, but got through school and then playing in bands and become a session musician and drinking and drugging and just, you know, having a great old time. And it wasn't until I was about 25, 26 that it viciously turned on me. And alcohol, instead of becoming my solution, became a very, very big problem to me because my personality and my behavior was just a 180 to what I was, what I was in real life, as in, you know, kind, considerate. Uh, I became a raging monster, and we had two little children, 
and my wife, and then it just it became became a living nightmare. It was really, really horrible for me. Uh, that's so that my wife eventually left me, and within months I was sat on the streets of Manchester, living on the streets, not couch surfing or staying, living actually on the streets with no money, no clothes. Everybody had excommunicated me. Nobody would talk to me. And I was just lonely, sad, and wanted to die. Wow. I, it, it, thank you so much for the courage to share that story. I, I mean, wow. Uh, and so let's talk about that lived experience in your journey. I think in everything you do, not only are you an expert and you, you know, as your bio showed, but having that lived experience, how does that influence uh, the work you do on a daily basis? It's 100%. I truly believe that if you haven't gone through a situation, especially alcoholism and drug addiction, you have no idea. You, you can't go to college to learn this stuff because you can't psychologically understand the three parts of the brain that's affected by alcoholism. And if, if I'm going to speak to someone, because I still see somebody today all these years on, they must have suffered what I do. And I think not only does it complete the circle of knowledge and education, but you can also place yourself in the shoes of whoever the patient or client is. But vice versa, they can always trust you because they know you've been there. It's, I always say it's like being dropped, dropped in Germany somewhere and you ask a guy when you're driving, can you tell me where Johnson Street is? And he says, well, I've never been there, but I think if you turn left and right, maybe on the left, you're not going to get to Johnson Street. But if you stop another guy, can tell my Johnson Street, oh, yeah, I used to live there. I know exactly what, let me show you exactly where it is. I'm going to get to Johnson Street. And I think it's the same in this industry. It's like, I may, many people will argue against this, but after studying this for over 30 years, I know for a fact that, like my, the mirroring part of the brain wants me to connect with somebody who's been there and survived and pulled through because that's all the interesting. Can I survive what I'm going through? And when they see somebody like me who's very, very successful, they go, yes, I can. And, and we lead them through that with our program, always to success, never to failure, always success. I, I think interesting that you say that. I think uh, a, a huge learning for me, Dr. Rob, uh, I have a friend who's uh, in recovery and when he had his one year, uh, anniversary or when he was sober for a year, he invited a few of us out. And it was so eye-opening for me to see, uh, I think there's a stigma, of course, attached to uh, addiction and, and mental health, of course, but addiction especially. And to see the, the variety of people there, you had people as young as 16, you had people as old uh, in their 80s, you had very, very successful, successful people at this uh, at this meeting celebrating this, and you had people who were uh, unfortunately living on the streets, right? So, like, really showing that, I mean, there is no uh, mental health and addiction touches every kind of piece of society. Um, but it was interesting for me and eye opening because I think there's assumptions sometimes made, mm. right, around the, a stigma. I would guess, right? Yeah. Whenever I do a presentation to people, I. On my PowerPoint, I put two figures there. One is a girl dressed in a nice business suit, and the other is what everyone perceives to be an alcoholic, is the long beard, the way the coat with the string tied round. And I asked them, who's the alcoholic? And all of them go for this guy, where I surprise them when I say, actually, they're both alcoholics. 
It's just one hasn't gone to the depths of the other one yet. But yeah, it doesn't discriminate. It will come and get you. If you are not sure whether an alcoholic or not, trace through your family history. Dad or uh, grandpa, sister, brother, going through generations. If nobody's suffering from alcoholism, then there's a good chance you're abusing alcohol. Because it's, oh, it's hereditary. It's passed on from generation to generation. And uh, you can quickly diagnose. Alcoholism is the only self-diagnosed illness in the world. There's something I come up with years ago. Ten DUIs do not make you an alcoholic. You know, if, I, if my wife sends me to a 12-step meeting, it doesn't make me an alcoholic. Mm. It's what that stuff does with my mental obsession like nobody has ever dreamt of. Imagine just craving chocolate. Well, times that by a million percent. And you'll realize what the alcoholic is going through when, he, when that click in the brain goes and he needs a drink. There's no stopping him. So when that happens, we become very, very antisocial. The behavior is completely unacceptable. And we, well, there's a couple of ways out for people like me, guys. One of them is death, which I tried five times. And on two occasions, it worked. And they brought me back to life on the side of a road. There's long-term prison sentence or you die. I mean, they're the choices. Yeah, and, and you know, you mentioned uh, something there. So during the pandemic, the organization I work with, uh, when we were housing our most vulnerable, many with uh, addictions and, and need be, we had we were not um, an alcohol treatment center where we actually uh, served alcohol during the day to kind of, and we, but we had to become that. We were asking people to isolate, so it was a huge learning, Doctor Rob, for us. And I also learned, which I didn't know. Uh, from people who do it, um, alcohol uh, management uh, all the time. They told me that alcohol is the worst drug to come off of. Uh, I didn't know that. They said, you know, other drugs will really make, you know, of course, they're terrible. They make your body hurt. But they said alcohol, if you just quit, you're a severe alcoholic, it will kill you. Uh, and I, I didn't know that. And they also said the worst time for many uh, alcoholics is first thing in the morning because it's the longest time you've gone without a drink. So your body's in shock. Uh, so yeah, I, I think there's so much we don't know and that people like yourselves, experts are, are teaching us. So, so thank you for that. Oh, awesome. I love to educate people around this because they're very uneducated and rightly so, you know, everyone thinks alcoholics are not, are not successful, but yeah, you can come off. Now you can overdose on drugs when the respiratory system closes down. That's what most drugs do or the heart you know, clot something when you take an amphetamines, but when you come off of anything, even heroin, even uh, methadone, you're not going to die. It might feel like you're going to die, don't get me wrong, but you're not actually going to die. The problem with drinking and the reason why so many people overdose is when they drink large amounts like I did of, of vodka or whiskey, what happens is as we're drinking it and we get drunk, it still sits in the stomach. So when we pass out and think we've had enough, there's a bunch of alcohol still yet to go around the body, and as it's processed around the body, you, you become with a, a, a toxicity well above what you, sh what you should be, just being sick or, or drunk driving, and eventually alcohol poisoning will kill you. Uh, and this is what we don't understand, is like, you know, I carry a bottle of, half a bottle of vodka in my, in my trunk of my car, wherever I go. And what that's for is if I get a call to go and collect somebody or someone's ill, I will go there, even if it's a 12-step call. And if somebody is that dependent upon alcohol, I don't want to bring him off. I'm giving him sips. I'm giving him little measures till we get to detox or we get to the hospital because I don't want a dead guy in my car. And it's really funny, Michael, because when I'm working with people and the first day they're drunk, and I say to them, okay, I want you to drink just this amount today. 
and you can hear the wife, that's, he didn't say that, he's not telling you to drink, surely, then he have to explain to the wife, he's like, we're going to get him in detox, he's going to be okay, but we can't just stop him drinking. So that's our biggest saying when you call up, are you drinking? Yes, don't stop right now. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart. Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. Yeah, that, and that's... People would not know that, right? They said that flies in the face of, oh, I can't believe. But once you know, you know, and you understand. Uh, they were telling me, uh, this is at Seton House in Toronto, where they have a managed alcohol program. They said uh, some of our, our uh, clients would have up to 16 tall boys of beer a day. And that's just managing through, right, as, as a managed alcohol site. Now, let's talk, I want to talk about something you touched on there. You said I was brought back sometimes in Canada right now, as I'm sure it's true. Uh, in the U.S., there's an opioid crisis uh, resulting in thousands of deaths each year, which is, you know, I've, we had a, a, a former ma a mayor who himself uh, is in recovery for years. And he said, you know, with a, I, I just can't believe a crisis hasn't been declared with thousands of people dying each year uh, and the attention isn't uh, paid to this. Can you talk to about talk with us about how did we get here and, and how addiction might look a little different than it did 20 years ago? 20 years ago, we had good old morphine, which was good enough for my mom and my grandma to, to deliver birth or pain or cancer. They gave you, they gave you morphine. So all of a sudden, the pharmaceutical companies jumped, jumped in. How can we make this more profitable? They come out. The latest one is fentanyl, which is probably a thousand times. I don't know how, how, how much it is uh, than, than uh, uh, methadone. Or, but here's the deal, morphine. Here's the deal. Uh, every, I say 95% of people that come to me with a heroin had a problem, severe, started in the doctor's office. So we've got to hold the medical, well, some of the medical fraternity, especially the pain med docs that are all over the place in Florida and stuff like that. We've got to start holding them accountable. We've got to start holding psychiatrists accountable. You know, we did a test, well, I did a test when I first came to America. I wanted to see how easy it was. Because I warned people 20 years ago, and it was an epidemic regarding pain medication. Everyone laughed at me. But I watched, we got six <coughs> psychiatrists. Uh, one of them refused, which is still our, our, our go-to guy today. But four of them wrote prescriptions for Adderall, just because I said I can't concentrate. And, the, and one of them not only wrote me a prescription for Adderall because I asked it, but didn't even make eye contact with me. I was in there about 20 seconds. He never took his eye off pad. He wrote the pad, handed me, still didn't look me in the face, and I walked out with 90 days of Adderall. That's where the problem is, first of all. So we have to look at that when it comes to drug addiction. The epidemic is huge. Now we go to the pandemic that happened. We have not even seen the tsunami that's coming regarding that no not only did alcohol go up by 24 percent in texas divorces went up by 18 percent suicides went up by nine percent i mean it's just coming and coming and coming when a, when a, a liquor store is considered one of them desperate uh, companies that need to stay open uh, we know we got some kind of problem in the u.s 
you know, because everyone's turned this drug. We did a, we did a, a test in the, we have a prison over here, you've probably heard of it, they, they put people to death, they don't mess around in Texas. But we're allowed to go in there after about two or three years of trying, and uh, we would ask the people on death row, you know, uh, do you remember your crime? And most of them would say, no, I don't remember it, I was wasted, I was drunk. And yet you sat on death row for something you didn't do. So which brings us to the conclusion that there is a difference between a Friday night drunk and an alcoholic on a Friday night. One needs to go to jail to sleep it off, probably get arrested in public disorder. The other one needs to go to hospital or treatment. And the, the education as well of the general public is there is still a stigma around alcoholism and drug addiction. It's like they're less than. I could probably name 20 actors right now that you will know from your favorite movies who have gone through uh, my company and recovered and gone back and been amazing. I can probably name a hundred musicians that you've listened to their records every single week. You've heard these on radio. Go back and sign new record deals. I, I can name six or seven footballers right now who are still playing in the NFL. One being in the top five of the highest paying uh, guy in the NFL. So when we're looking at this, you can recover and you can come back. We become better fathers, we become better sons, you know, we become better husbands or wives as, as the case may be. But the people don't understand this. It's like, this is recovery. You know, me, this is it. Living proof that, that there is a life after addiction and alcoholism. And it's not, I don't, I didn't have a drinking problem, Michael. I had a thinking problem. Alcohol and drugs have 1% to do with alcoholism and drug addiction. People freak out when I say this. It's just the symptom. It's the end result. It's a bit like spots to my chicken pots. Somebody goes, hey, I see you've got chicken pots. How do you know? Can see the spots. Actually, that's the symptom. What I actually have is a viral infection that can kill me. That's what alcoholism is. There is no cure for alcoholism. There is no cure for alcoholism. But what we can have is that daily reprieve, a stay of execution where we can do a few simple things every day to keep me on track to make sure that I never drink ever again and therefore I can get on with my life. So when we look at the brain, the basal ganglia, which is the repetition part of the brain with alcoholics, this is what's passed on from generation, there's a chink in it. And that chink goes to self-sabotage. And with alcoholics, it's alcohol and drug addicts, it's drugs. Alcoholics are born, drug addicts are made. So it's about fixing that chink. Also with alcohol, because it's different than drugs, guys, it's a fine line, but let me tell you the difference. My hypothalamus tells people to drink water and eat food. It's a natural fight or flight part of the brain. Over a considerable period of time, with alcoholics, not drug addicts, it tells an alcoholic to drink alcohol. That's why you see alcoholics go days and weeks, even months. I went months without drinking water and eating food. I survived purely on alcohol because my brain is telling me. And the third part of the brain is our neural pathways, which is learned behavior from our childhood. How many times I've told you, you can't go to college, Robert, you're, not, you're too stupid. Get down off that chair, you idiot. Jeez, will you get out of my way? I wish I, wish I wouldn't have had you kids. All this is the traumatic that we take. So our neural pathways are distorted for self-sabotage. The gateway drug, guys, is trauma. Forget about your marijuana and stuff. The gateway drug is trauma. Every alcoholic and drug has trauma. Every single one. And you go back into trauma, which we've studied for over 15 years, and you look what trauma actually is, 
Because if you ask somebody what's trauma, they go, well, I've never been raped and I've never been in a plane crash. It's like, no, we go way deeper than that. Way deeper than that from comments somebody made. Oh, you shouldn't wear that. You look fat in that. Oh, my goodness. You will never understand. And the correlation between acting out as an adult and the comment as a child, you can't put it together. We can. And when we do, it'll blow your mind. But you, you don't. Well, just because she said this, that I'm doing this. Why, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't have to. It's trauma. If you don't sort your trauma out, it'll sort you out. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. On this show, we talk about you know, taking a trauma-informed uh, approach. And if you don't, exactly what you said. If you don't, and I, you know, we, again, we're always learning. Uh, we had a trauma expert on once and he said, look, like someone might come in and you walk in the room and your beard is that, you know, is yep. the trigger that really the trauma and they're back to square. So you have to treat, until you actually work through that, you're not going to move forward. Now you do have a different approach um, to treating addiction that centers around four key aspects. Um, that offer the best hope for recovery. Can you tell us about your approach and how it's a little different than your kind of uh, old school approaches? Yeah, well, I, I, I realized many years ago that the treatment model is broken. When you're taking little Johnny back into the same treatment center, charging him $30,000 a month, there's something wrong here. When people are drinking, going back from your treatment center back up, there's something wrong here. When you're teaching relapse prevention, there's something wrong here. When there's only a 3 to 5% success rate in the treatment centers, there's something wrong here. So we, we looked at it different. We were looking at trauma 20 years ago when people were laughing at us saying it's got nothing to do with trauma. We pinpointed trauma, we took it apart, we uncovered, discovered, and discarded how much damage that does. So we use neuroscience as we go in to treat these people. We use neuro-linguistic programming, NLP, to, to replace broken sentences and words and bad habits and neural pathways. We use somatic experience because the body will tell you way before you relapse that it's going to relapse. And we use brain spotting which is a direct link from the pupil into the subconscious brain. You see, the reason why all that is very, very important is because we believe repetition strengthens and confirms. This is done on a daily basis, one hour a day for 90 days at home. You have to recover in your own environment as problems come up. And once you get this program in the way that we do it, we solidify. That's what we do. And we guarantee, I mean, imagine you're going somewhere, oh, guarantee you'll get that job. Wow, really? It's like, you have to give these people hope. In treatment centers, this is what I hear in some of them. Now, don't get me wrong, there's some amazing ones, but this is what I hear in some of them. Okay, there's 30 people here. In six months' time, 28 of you would have relapsed. Well, that's telling my brain to relapse. Everything I see, hear, touch, feel, everything is stored in my subconscious brain. And that's why when somebody walks in with a beard, you go straight back there and it pulls that bit of trauma that you should have cleared up years ago, by the way, with your therapist, but the therapist didn't really know that that was trauma that could, do you see what I mean? So when somebody walks in and you all of a sudden don't know yourself and you all of a sudden have a, something going on, the bad mood, the tantrum, the craving, whatever it is, because of that beard, you're not looking at that beard, but subconsciously you've made that connection. The mirroring part of the brain has seen the beard and has mirrored it with the trauma that you suffered. You might have been molested by someone with had a beard or a schoolmaster. Whatever this, the trauma was, the brain will quickly mirror that. 
And the mirroring part of the brain is very, very fascinating. You, you hang around nine successful people, you will become the 10th. If you hang around nine depressed people, you will become the 10th. It's like, show me your friends, I'll show you your future. We're communication animals. If you have hanging around, hanging around with some of the guys who have sayings or stupid sayings like, shut up, or, you know, after weeks or months, you will start saying that. You'll start saying that stupid sentence that you hated two months ago. Because we mimic, just like monkeys, monkey see, monkey do. We mimic each other far more distant. And what happens is we get drawn into that mimicking part that if he's taking drugs, that we may take drugs with him. Now, alcoholism, again, alcoholics are born, drug addicts are made. That's something very controversial right now. But drug addicts do not have the predisposition. Alcoholics do. Wow. And that, again, like I said, I, I, I love, one of the reasons I love this podcast is because we're incredible guests, but I'm always learning. Uh, alcoholics are you know, the predisposition there at, versus drugs. Uh, incredible stuff. Uh, thank you, Dr. Rob. Now, this is a really broad question. I don't think there's one answer to it. But what has to change moving forward uh, to reverse the rising number of people uh, experiencing addiction across North America? I think education. I really think education is the key. Once we get educated about what we're dealing with and that it's not a disease that we look down on. It is a disease, and I'll tell you why, because most people argue this, it's just a choice. It's not a choice when the hypothalamus is against you telling you to drink. You know, it's not a choice when it's a biochemical reaction to the ethanol in alcohol. So we need to get educated about this. We need to start conversations with our with our youngsters, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, need to be educators, alcoholism or addiction in the family. Let's start talking. And the biggest controversial sentence I'm going to say today is don't trust your doctor. I'd question them. Go for a second opinion. Just because he sat there with an MD behind his name does not make him God. There's so many mistakes. The, the medical fraternity is the third leading cause of death in the USA. I'm going to repeat that again very slowly. The medical fraternity are the third biggest killer of human beings in the United States of America. So you have to question this. Just because they're giving you pills, <coughs> excuse me, doesn't make it right. So if I'm going to doctor for depression, it means my serotonin isn't firing properly. I'm low on serotonin. So what the doctor will give me is an SSR, which I'll take and my serotonin will boost and I'll feel good. <clears throat> the question is, what's causing the depression? Not, can we treat it with this drug straight up? What's causing it? Why are you depressed? We're not born this way. Nobody's doing that. Here's a pill, here's a tablet, you know, go out, you'll be okay. What's causing that headache? What's causing that depression? When you get down to the crux of the matter, you'll find there's some trauma that needs cleaning up. So, Dr. Rob, let me ask you this, because you, you touched on it a few times, and I agree. I think, you know, in Canada as well, we have a great medical system. However, you have to be your own advocate. You have to push harder. You have to ask questions like you're saying. But why is it that, you know, we hear a lot about doctors prescribing, and, we you know, we've heard about it in the past, the oxy, oxy, like different things that people get hooked on. Why do you think that is happening? Because there's a lot of good people who are doctors who really care, doing good work. But why do you think... Uh, like you mentioned, the medical community, third leading. Why is that happening? Pharmaceutical companies run this country and every other country that's successful. 
pharmacy, if they can't give you a pill or stick you in a treatment center, nobody wants to know you. There's no money in recovery, you know. Now, you say, I want to I I just uh, reiterate this, there are some amazing doctors out there. I'd say like 80% of doctors are amazing. The other guys are financially motivated by, by uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies. Uh, they, they got like 45 seconds with each patient. It's not their fault. They're just overstaffed. I think the more PAs that come along now and, and doctor's uh, assistants come up now where they can set the brunt, I think it's better. But most people nowadays are, are just happy to get medication, just to feel that, hi, everybody should be on medication. What you take? You're not taking anything? What's wrong with you? It, it, it actually has come to that in America. Now, I'm an American citizen. I'm not, I'm not standing here from the English, you know, waving across at you guys. I mean, I'm an American. I became American about two years ago. I take this country very serious, more than I did England. I'm very passionate about this country. And, and I want to change. I want to change the way people look at addiction. I want to change the education. I want to change the way the medical fraternity are pushing out these drugs because it's a financial, uh, you know, on their on their salary and a financial uh, emphasis on, you know, how much they get paid for every company they take on board because they get the choice who that what what uh, medication to push. And I'm sorry to say this, guys, but I've seen it time and time again. Now I'm not a medical doctor. I, I I'm a double PhD. So I've done more, more work at college than a, a normal doctor. So before you start on that scale, I'm telling you now, don't trust, second guess somebody, second opinion somebody. There's always a reason, communication, communication, communication. And we can learn to live with these addictions that we have and these afflictions that we have. We can learn to understand trauma better with trauma patients. Because if you just look at a normal household, where the, let's say the man's a chronic alcoholic and he's raving every night, the poor wife, because we have to rework the families, that's something great we come up with. If we don't work with the families, we do not take the patient. So what happens is the wife going through all of this, trying to protect the children, seeing the violence in the house, drinking every single night, getting punched now and again, the brain and the trauma part of the brain is the same as when a soldier comes back from war. Both don't know when they're going to die. Both don't know if it's their last day. And they're both walking around on eggshells and nervous all the time and trying to protect their children or protect the country. You know, this is what we need to start looking at and getting more educated. And I'll say this. Everybody knows somebody who suffers from alcoholism or addiction. And if you don't, it's probably you. Well said. Well said. Now, I want to ask you something. What's happening in Canada right now, so uh, in British Columbia on our West Coast, uh, we've recently just seen uh, many harder drugs decriminalized, right? There's a thought out there, and there's a big push around safe supply, right? If we could get the safe supply, again, people are going to use what's killing them is you know, not having safe drugs is that there's a push for safe supply. I just wanted to get your thoughts around uh, first the decriminalization of some of the harder drugs. You think that's a good path forward and your thoughts around safe supply. I've, I've not done too much research, but so it, here's, here's off the top of my head. There's got to be pros and cons. First of all, um, the, the safe medication. There are a lot of people who take this out of desperation. There are a lot of people who take this out of habit. You know, if that can be controlled in somehow, obviously it's always a good thing. When you cross over the line to chronic drug, drug uh, taking and, and chronic alcoholism, then you're gone. There's no way back from that. But what I think we'll see is I think we'll see the average Joe on the streets 
uh, as we do our numbers going for the next five to ten years, will be decreasing from overdoses. Once we start getting, you know, more educated and we start de uh, decriminalizing these these drugs, so again, not done enough research on it, but it would be interesting to see what how Canada turns out. There is a rumor that a state, I don't know which state it is, I read it in the paper the other day, were decriminalizing um, cocaine and three other street drugs. And all we can do is is try these methods because we're in a mess where we are now. You know, I did I did this on the on TV a, a few years ago. Was the uh, injection site inside doctors' offices, and people were in outraged. And then my take on it was this: is that I'd rather stick a counselor in there, and if one out of five thousand drug addicts that came in a safe place put the needles away safe, if one person was saved by talking to the counselor, then obviously it's a good thing. I don't want to see people injecting in the streets. I don't want to see dirty needles where my children can pick it up. I don't want to see that. And if this is a way around it, they're going to use whether you like it or not. But at least we've got to try these different approaches to the absolute phenomenal problem that's about. And you know when people report it and report drug addiction and alcoholism? We did a study in hospital Friday and Saturday night for a month. 98% of people on a Friday and Saturday night came in intoxicated, known alcoholic or known heroin and drug, drug abuser. And when they died, because many of them did, they went down as liver failure. They went down as just an overdose. So we're not looking at, was it drugs, was it alcohol? Mm. And when we look at them numbers, you think they're high now, you want to see the real numbers, it will scare you. Wow. Well, that is a, a very uh, sobering thought. Listen, just in case uh, I didn't feed into the stereotypical Canadian uh, stereotype, I just want, want to show you something here when I'm drinking. This is uh, every Canadian. This is mandatory. Tim Hortons here in, in Canada. Uh, it's not, it, re it really isn't, but it seems to be I'm feeding into that today. Dr. Rob, uh, this has been an awesome conversation. I could talk to you uh, with hours for hours. I think it's fascinating um, when you talk about people thinking that there is a look to alcoholism, alcoholism, one look, we, same thing with homelessness. They'll say, oh, and usually, usually when I ask grade threes who are, uh, have no filter and are honest, they describe me. They'll say an old guy with a beard on the street. <laughs> so, but, because uh, they're being dead honest, right? And that's what they see on the streets. They don't see the hidden homelessness. But then we talk about, hey, look at each other. There is no look. It's a feeling. It, it, you know, we talk about all those things. So thank you so much for educating us today. This goes a long way. This is why we do this podcast. It's around educating our sector and our listeners uh, so we can move forward better. And, and you've done that today. If people want to find out more about the awesome work you're doing and the incredible uh, work that you're doing, where can they go? Just jump on any search engine, Dr. Rob Kelly. I spelled my name with two B's, R-O-B-B-K-E-L-L-Y.com. It's the website. Uh, just put my name in search engines. I'll come up. And listen, guys, if you're sat at home right now, listen to this, and you're feeling depressed, you think you have a problem, or you think that you don't deserve anything in life, first of all, I'm sorry. I want to apologize to you. Somebody's put that there. We're born with million-dollar minds. And secondly... 214-600-0210 is my personal cell phone number. I will give you a free 10-minute pep talk that will change your life. I promise. Don't sit out there alone. I'd rather text you and talk to you for 10 minutes than hear of your funeral in two weeks' time. Wow. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Rob. That's incredible 
I mean, we've had guests share their email, etc. The phone, but to have someone of your your stature share their their personal cell phone and offer that uh, just shows if anyone ever doubted, which I didn't think they would, your dedication. Uh, they will not now. Thank you for joining us today, and thank you for the life saving work you continue to do. It's, it's been an honor. Thank you. Well, you know, I'm not supposed to say this, you know, biased, but this has been one of my favorite guests. And I mean it to say I'm fascinated by this. You know why? Because I am not an expert. I work uh, in the field of housing and homelessness, but addiction and mental health, uh, they side by side, right? We, we learn a lot. I'm, I'm always learning. And why am I learning? Because I want to do better. I want to help more people. My organization, my sector wants to help more people. So we are consistently and constantly always learning uh, today. You know, just that one sentence of uh, alcoholics are, are born and, and drug addicts are created. Something to think about, Malover. You may not always agree with everything that uh, with our different experts on this show, but it's a different perspective. And, and definitely that's going to sit with me for a while. Wow. Another great episode. Uh, we will see you next time on The Way Home. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.